if you have cultural intelligence. I think it helps you break through this attitude in your own head. To me, your culture and your approach to leadership is as unique to you as your DNA. Art has this extraordinary opportunity and you have to deliver on it to help the world understand each other. Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Rob. And my name is Anna Aguilera. On this episode, we're talking to Julia Middleton about cultural intelligence. Julia is passionate about helping people from all backgrounds to develop as leaders and make an active and tangible contribution to their communities and to the wider society. Julia is the author of two best-selling books, Beyond Authority and Cultural Intelligence. In the autumn of 1989, Julia founded Common Purpose, which has grown to be one of the biggest leadership developed organisations in the world. Julia stepped down from that position of chief executive in 2019, but as founder, Julia works in a non-executive capacity on some key Common Purpose initiatives. In April of 2020, she launched Women Emerging from Isolation, which she now leads. Julia is also a member of the advisory groups of both Common Purpose in Pakistan and the Sky Blue Founders Group and is a patron for Common Purpose of the Europe 101 Initiative. She's on the board and chairs the investment committee of Alphana, delivering venture philanthropy in the Arab world, is on the International Advisory Council for Fundação Dom Cabral at Business School in Brazil, is a senior fellow of Babson College is a trustee of the REN project supporting people with autoimmune conditions and is a goodwill ambassador of the Aurora Forum, a global humanitarian initiative run out of Armenia. Julia was born in London and educated at French lycées around the world. She worked for the Industrial Society after receiving an economics degree from the London School of Economics. She's married, has five children, one daughter-in-law, one son-in-law and one granddaughter. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. We're so uh, delighted to have you here. And um, is there anything in that bio we should know about you that uh, our listeners should know beyond your wonderful achievements globally? Yeah, I think there's going to be more grandchildren. Oh, That's really? So yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I, we're on a roll on this. <laughs> That's amazing. Once they start, they just keep coming, right? I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> So I first came to know you through um, some work that I was doing here in Hong Kong and I had discovered your book, Cultural Intelligence, um, and also your TED Talk. And I wanted to start perhaps there with a little bit of an overview of what you define as cultural intelligence because I don't know if our audience necessarily uh, knows of your work and we'd like to introduce that to them. So could you give us a little bit of a brief on that? A brief on it. It's very nervous giving a brief on cultural intelligence to artists. <laughs> they tend to be quite good on cultural intelligence. Makes me very, very nervous. Uh, but I'm utterly delighted to. I am passionate about cultural intelligence. It seems to me that as a as a citizen, we're all facing lots of problems in the world, and most of those problems problems cross boundaries. So we as leaders have to start crossing boundaries too, and that means working with people who are not like us. And cultural intelligence 
was always, to my mind, absolutely key to getting leaders outside their own boxes, working with people that they wouldn't normally think they would do. And, and you know, the outcome of that is better ideas because um, homogeneity does not produce good ideas. To my mind, innovation comes from what I would call well-led discord. You need leaders with cultural intelligence who gather people from all different parts to work together, and that's where the great ideas come from. So a few years ago, I wandered around and went to see all the people I thought were particularly brilliant at this, many of the artists. And to me, cultural intelligence is the ability, it's, a, it's the ability to work with people who are not like you and to thrive in so doing, yeah? Now, lots of people say, what do you mean by culture? And um, I'm afraid I'm one of those people who you should never ask a definition of because I can't manage you. But loosely, to some extent, whatever your definition is, I want to broaden it, right? So cultural intelligence, everybody immediately thinks, oh, that means different parts of the world or even different parts of my street working together, yeah? So they think of cultural intelligence is about getting geographies to work together. I think cultural intelligence is as much about geographies as it is about generations, for example. Mm. You know, I think people of my age, frankly, if you can't inspire somebody who's half your age, you shouldn't be a leader. You know, you should get out of the way. But also, perversely, conversely, if you're a young person, you can't influence somebody my age, then there's a problem. You know, we have to get better at getting generations to work together. Geographies, generation sectors, you know, I mean, all, many of your listeners will have suffered this sort of standard stuff. You know, I'm, I run an NGO, so I must be useless and can't add their two or two together. Many of your guys are artists, so they're probably airy-fairy, couldn't manage anything. And anybody who works in the private sector is a rat making money for shareholders. Anybody who works for the state is, is, is a bureaucrat trying to make wasting public money, you know. The differences between the sectors and people sort of build impressions of each other and then, then don't work together. Sectors, specialisms, backgrounds, beliefs, so many different things cause us to not work well together. It always makes me laugh. You know, you, you constantly, as you say, I started Union Emerging from Isolation about a year ago, which I, I absolutely love. One of the things that makes me laugh the most is this sort of constant Frankly, bold that women don't work well together. You know, women, you know, they're catty and they're horrible to each other and they don't work well together. Actually, women are extraordinarily effective at working together, in my experience. But even women could develop a bit of cultural intelligence rather than saying, you know, if I were in your culture, I wouldn't make those compromises. Well, my friend, they're not a compromise, and actually, you probably would. You know, we have to get better at working with people who are not like us so we can come up with good ideas and so that we can crack some of the more difficult problems we're facing. Um, as I wandered around learning from people who are good at this, I came up with something that is so totally pathetic. Most people dismiss it in the first. So, so stay with me for one second. People with more cultural intelligence, i.e. the ability to work with people who are not like them, have figured, in my experience, out what I would call their core and their flex. Their core being everything about themselves, that if they stopped doing it or believing it, they would no longer be them, right? 
everybody always says, oh, you mean values? And I don't mean values. I mean everything from values to behaviors, you know, how you greet somebody or what you deeply believe. What is your core? If you didn't do it, you'd no longer be you. And then what is your flex? All the stuff that you can move around on. And again, people say, oh, flex. Oh, that means all the stuff you haven't made your mind up on. And the answer is no, 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 no. I have made my mind up. I've decided to be flexible about it. And the leaders with cultural intelligence have figured out their core and their flex. Uh, if your core is strong, I think people tend to trust you. If your flex is strong, I think people tend to trust you. It's best illustrated probably with the two extremes, okay? So you meet people who are all core and no flex whatsoever. Massive, massive, massive core, tiny, 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 tiny little flex, right? And I was saying it's true. The absolute image of that in my mind is my grandparents. They came from the north of England. They took the view that if everybody in the street agreed with them, there wouldn't be a problem. And I really did love them dearly, despite the fact they used to make me wear a skirt all the time. I really, really did love them. But the truth is you couldn't let them outside the front door <laughs> because they had no flex whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And then the other extreme is somebody who is all flex and a tiny, 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 weensy little core. And again, in my head, the, the illustration of that was my first boss. He was a salesman and he took me out on my first trip with him. And I remember sitting there thinking, is there anything this guy wouldn't say to get a deal? Mm. And you wouldn't trust him further than you could flow. You know, he would flow in every possible direction. You sort of thought there's nothing there. And there's a variance of that, actually. I remember somebody saying to me, you know, Julia Core is, is me. It's, it's, it's me. And I said, yes. And she said, it's me and therefore it's private. And then she said, can you be a leader and not reveal your core? And the answer is no, you can't because then nobody will trust you, you know. So sometimes you appear to have a tiny core, but you don't. You have such a big core, it's just that you won't tell anybody about it. And actually, those are often the people who want, you know, the two Annas, tell me all about you. I want to know everything about you, but no, no, I won't tell you anything about me. So core and flex, I found, is a very effective way of getting of helping people to sort of navigate different and to have the kinds of conversations that you need to have. And again, another silly example, this guy sent me a message and said, Julia, um, it was helpful. I said, yeah. And he said, I've stopped spitting in the street. And I said, hang on, back up. What do you mean? And he said, well, you know, I have never realised that there are some people who, if they see me spitting in the street, in their core, they will never, whatever I say, ever have any respect for me. Mm, and I've also realised that I can still be me and stop spitting in the street. It's not essential for me <laughs> to spit in the street. So core and flex, silly examples, but, you know, you were talking also, obviously. The Arab world is, is drawing so many artists to the Arab world you know, I remember the first time I went to work in Saudi, not in not in Riyadh, but in Jeddah, which is a port city. So, you know, port cities are always more interesting, as convenient as people and places. And I remember lots of people saying to me, oh, 
um, are you going to cover Julia? And, and, and I was trying to figure out whether I would cover or not. And in the middle of this discussion with myself, my daughters, I had three daughters in the middle, they all arrived and said, Mum, how could you consider covering yourself? You know, you've been into women's in, independence for such a long time. How could you possibly consider um, covering yourself? And I kept on thinking about it. In the end, I said to myself, listen, what I wear has always been in my flex. It has never been in my core. So therefore, to be consistent with that, I must cover. So I went to Jeddah, covered, learnt a lot, learnt a lot about some little bits in my core that I needed to dust down and move out because you'll always find bits in your core that, that don't stack up, you know, that, that are more based on prejudgment than judgment. So I began to realize, surrounded by all these powerful women, that also always in my core for years had been the assumption that women who cover are somehow weak and slightly pathetic. And surrounded by all these powerful women in Jedi, you couldn't maintain that view. But the really interesting thing was coming back and coming back and people would say, ah, you see, and you'd say, what? And you see, they, and when everybody talks about they, you, you need to be worried. They, they, you are prepared to go to Jeddah and you will cover. They come to the Western world and they won't wear Western clothes. To which my answer is actually what they wear is in their core. Yeah. What I wear is in my flesh. And seen through those eyes, that point is meaningless to my mind. Cultural intelligence to me is on the line between core and flex. And it's a line that you're always calibrating, adjusting, and you go through life and things change. You know, you're very young, you adopt somebody else's core. My core was entirely everything my father said. And then, you know, you're a teenager and your core disappears and you try just about everything. And, and then you then you 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 work on a creative group or, or a very intellectual group or you work with people who are double your age or half your age and constantly and then you go to another part of the world. You're constantly recalibrating what you're thinking, how you're doing it. And the cultural intelligence means that the line shouldn't be winging around because that means you just haven't thought it through. But it should be calibrating constantly as you move through. And obviously, COVID has caused me to recalibrate too. You know, it's, it's also made me laugh, to be honest. You know, do you, do you remember all those people from the last, well, in my case, 20 years who said, oh, you know, I can never establish a relationship with anybody unless I can see their face? To which the answer is, well, now you've discovered that wasn't true, weren't you? <laughs> Out of pure necessity, uh, yeah. You know, core and flex moves. Um, yeah. You you know, I laugh my head off. My husband said, oh, Zoom, Zoom, I can't form relationships on Zoom. Well, the answer is, well, then you're not going to form any relationships. You better get on with it, figure out how to do it. Mm. So, you know, situations push you into different situations. But I think that all of that talk, I think there's two important things. Firstly is that if you have cultural intelligence, I think it helps you break through this attitude in your own head when you meet people that you are somehow the benchmark yourself and you meet other people and you benchmark them against yourself. You know, is this person taller than me or shorter than me, prettier than me, not prettier than me, more clever than, swankier than me, whatever it is. 
judging people with yourself as a benchmark. And I think when you do really develop cultural intelligence, you start meeting other cultures and saying, this is different, let's have a look, as opposed to, this is different, how does it relate to me? First point. Second point is that most people think cultural intelligence comes from learning about other people. You know, as an artist, you, you travel around the world, you, you meet people from different parts of the world or different parts of your street or different generations or whatever. And, of course, the more people you meet, the more your cultural intelligence is likely to increase. I hope with some good conversations helped along with the core and flex model. But ultimately, there's one culture that's the real killer culture that you've got to get your head around, and that is your own culture, and it's the most difficult one. Mm. And understanding your own culture and where your own culture helps you to understand other people and where your whole own culture actually gets in the way. So core and flex, oversimplicity, but it's helpful. I think it is, and, and you know, I've, I think before I sort of came into that concept inadvertently I had worked in four I've lived lived in four continents now and worked in many more and I think that's it's an articulation of my exposure to that in some way shape or form you know I used to go to I went to America and I moved to Las Vegas and I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of people from Cirque du Soleil and I was very flexible to adapt to that environment but at some point I'm a manager within that environment, so that core has to rise up and position myself basically so that I could be effective within that group. And then also there's times, especially I feel like the hardest sort of wake-up call, you know, going back to the Arab world was me going to uh, the Middle East, either in Dubai or Saudi Arabia because I've been and worked in both now, and that very hard stop of my culture uh, with their culture in terms of the core and flex. And that's, that was a very confronting experience for me. But I think that that idea of cultural intelligence, because for me, because there's so much core in some ways that they behave and work that I have to accept is unchangeable, then I constantly go into that part of the world and just look and focus on the flexible aspects of that. So flexibility in the people that I'm working with and the flexibility in the environment and flexibility in the even the construct because if you've ever been to an event or a show in in the Arab world it starts with the anthem and then you've got this whole there's all this protocol that has to go along with a show um, that is unmovable and everybody tries to creatively work with that but at the same thing you're going to be showing the flag and you're going to be playing the anthem there's only so many ways that you can uh, do that and it's quite interesting to come from a very uh, opposite culture where we're always trying to do things differently. Having said that, the Arab world is very advanced in doing things um, from a technological perspective. They have a lot of money. Um, they, they love to see new and creative things on the stage. So in, in a weird juxtaposition, although it's been so rigid, there's also been a lot of opportunity and innovation at the same time. So it's very, very confusing when you go over there as somebody who's <laughs> not worked there before. And I feel like a lot of people have to to be prepared is to to work on that flexibility, especially in the Arab world. Yeah, and you know, I remember I used Core and Flex to have a very, very difficult conversation with Arab partners a few years ago. I remember it very clearly, and I decided I had to be brave because if you can work with people, you've got to understand them. And I remember sitting down saying, "Tell me true." 
do you really deep down believe that as a culture, as a Middle Eastern Arab culture, you by definition have a bigger core than mine? And they all said, yes. And I said, do you believe that because I am who I am, I have a tiny core? And they said, yes. And I said, are you sure it's just not that you can't see my core? <laughs> you know, you're not looking for my core. You're assuming I don't have one. Actually, I know that, you know, these are really decent people. They were actually fine about me being different <laughs> and not sharing their core. They just didn't think I had a core at all. <laughs> Interesting. And and I, I, I think it's very, very... But the other thing, you know, that's interesting is that we all get... You know, if you think of flex as a muscle, muscles get really flabby if you don't work them hard. And it's amazing how your flex can get floppy <laughs> and you can forget it. Uh, well, go back to that story. I remember when my um, one of my children got married in um, in Bangalore in India, and I remember my son saying, "You know, Mum, are you going to wear a sari?" And I said, "Absolutely not." And he said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, one, I'm not from India, and two, you can't see, but I'm quite fat, and I really didn't want anybody seeing the fat around my waist, right?" And in the middle of this conversation. Rachel, my youngest daughter, walked in, and this, the the, story, the the truth about this is never ever let your children watch your TED talk or read your books. Yeah. <laughs> so she walked in. And she said, "Mom," I said, "Yes," and she said, "I thought you said what you wore was in your flat." Gotcha. So I wore a sari, and she was right. You know, <laughs> it, it's extraordinary how it hardens up and you forget. Mm. I said I'd be flexible about that, so. And then you become completely convinced that you're the end person who's flexing. That, there's another example. In the so it was a very long wedding over a number of days. And I remember there was a point at which I lost it. And again, my rather lovely eldest son walks in and says, Mum, what is going on now? And I said, listen, I have really behaved. I have flexed and flexed and flexed for days and days and days and days and days. I am, I am flexing. I have flexed and flexed and flexed. Now you're telling me I've got to go and sit out there under an oaring for a whole hour without hardly moving in <laughs> that heat. I'm not doing it. I'm doing all the flexing. No one else is doing the flexing. At which point his answer was, Mum, you should actually be sitting out for four hours under that awning. Everybody else has flexed quite hard for you on this one. And you become so obsessed with seeing your own flex that you don't see that other people are flexing too. Mm. So to me, you know, coreplex, it just helps when there's an intersection. You know, there's usually two cores and two flexes. You know, there's two people. Or, or sometimes there's a core and flex and one is me and the other is an organisation. You know, can I perform here or can I not perform here? What's their core and flex? And let's not assume that we're going to clash. But what happens when we do clash? And if I just flex all my core, then what was the point of having a core at all? Where would you say cultural intelligence sits in relationship with resilience? It has very little direct connection, but lots of indirect, obviously, because resilience has a connection to everything. The moments when I have been the least resilient is when I have, I've sold the pass on my own core. 
I've seen something happen and I haven't done anything about it or I haven't stood to my core or stood to my flag, you know, and, and you know you've been gutless and you haven't done it and that sort of horrible feeling late to that night when you're in the shower thinking of all the things you should have done that you didn't do, that feeling undermines your resilience pretty well forever. Mm. because you're so disappointed in yourself. I mean, I'm really good at forgiving everybody, everything except forgiving myself. I'm no good at that. That's that's very difficult. I think it's tre- relevant as it is. I also think that, you know, a lot of people talk about networks. You know, we all need networks. We need, and by networks, I mean relationships, not just business cards. We all need networks, but I would argue we need two different groups of networks. You know, you need the deeply supportive network who will love you and care for you when things are really tough. But you also need the turbulence networks, the people who will tell you true, even though you don't want to hear it. And I think that people who don't have turbulence networks, who only follow people on social media that they agree with, if you don't hear any of those other voices, then I think you lose your resilience because you're not hearing or, you know, you're, you're getting too many surprises. Mm. And that really undermines. But if you have enough people who tell you truth, who are your turbulence networks, who you can rely on, they'll tell you truth, then I think that makes you much more resilient because you can see what's coming a bit better. Well, it's really interesting because... Uh... Uh, I, I think also, do you think that the type of people that would have that tenacity to move beyond their own borders and get outside their own uh, core have more of that flex? Like what type, what type of person, what, what, are we, what are we, the people that have moved different, to different locations and work with different cultures? Is there a comparison? Is there a personality difference? Is there, a, is there something that we that would define us in our core and flex that that you could t- you could have put a description on? Does that make sense? We're nomads. We're true to our human ancestors. Yeah, but but you know, you're 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 stuck. Your brain is stuck in cultural intelligence being about geography. And and I'm really pushing you back. I mean the amount of artists who only ever talk to other artists. Mm. They talk to artists all over the world, right? So they think they're full of cultural intelligence because they're such global animals. But actually, they only talk to other artists. So I would argue they're probably quite short on cultural intelligence. You know, it's more than just geography. People who, who are good at this, I think that you are more likely to have cultural intelligence, there's only one feature that will give it you more, which is that if you are fundamentally interested in other human beings, mm. and I think some people are really not interested in other human beings, and they can therefore, you know, they want to be leaders, they want to achieve things, so therefore they will develop cultural intelligence because that's what they, but it won't come as naturally. If you are fundamentally interested in other human beings, it will help, first point. I think the other thing that gives you an edge on cultural intelligence is if your first language is not English. Because people whose first language isn't English, the chances are that that's the only language they speak, which means that they have no experience of struggling in somebody else's language to try and express themselves. 
the brain is wired in only one way, not multiple ways. You know, I remember when I was, you know, when I, my kids used to say, mum, because French was my first language, you know, mum, what's this in French? And I said, well, they'd say, mum, don't be difficult. And I said, well, there isn't an exact, what is this in French? <laughs> you know, it was as if it was a science, and it's not. And I think people who just speak English are hampered. I think they have a significant disadvantage. And part of that disadvantage is that they think, actually, that they have an advantage. You know, oh, they I, think, I, oh, well, that's I, a global language, so that's easier. Actually. Yeah. I mean, for my, my people weaker. From my perspective, I've always, you know, we've, we've, interviewed many people from all around the globe but I always feel like Anna is like she has that with you know the people that you have a common language with there's there's far more comprehension and understanding there than I've been able to I feel like I'm kind of knocking on the door kind of hearing the thing but you know I I, I feel that I feel not a frustration it's probably the wrong word but I, I feel that barrier that you're speaking about Julia because you know, I understand a fair bit of French, but I'm not fluent in it. And Anna speaks three languages. And there's just that commonality that she can connect with them on a level that I can't, you know. And that's and it's also been an interesting experience with here in Asia because obviously I wish I could speak Chinese, but to understand Chinese culture and the way they think, you really need to understand their language and the way it is constructed and the way that you know, and I, I've started to learn bits, but my, my brother knows Japanese and, and Chinese uh, as two languages on top of English. And uh, he he really resonates with them far more than I do. Yet I'm the one that's lived in Asia longer than him and he lives in Australia. Yet I feel he has the commonality that I don't because he can speak the language. And it's worth saying that, it, of course, it's about speaking the language. But it's more it's than also that. also about speaking languages mm. you know it just um my youngest son's an engineer and he's just showing me a wiring diagram for something the other day and I was looking at and thinking you know how poor it is that there aren't more than one wiring diagram on top of each other you know people who speak more than that one language you just it it, it changes how your brain works mm. and how you communicate mm. and also the, and also you're much much more forgiving of people who are taking the trouble to speak to you in English, struggling to express themselves in their second language for the benefit of you who's speaking in your own language. And, and then, you know, the amount of people who sort of go, oh, don't speak very good English, get <laughs> <Yeah>, knotted. <laughs> That's it. What do you think that post-pandemic, what what is changing now is in terms of what we're talking about and how people work together and how we interrelate and is there a good shift is there positives is there negatives what are your thoughts about beyond you know because I think it's quite interesting that we're all going through this pandemic together every place is dealing with things differently people are behaving differently um, and people are overcoming challenges in very different ways and it's quite fascinating to see what's your thoughts on it I don't think it's an equaliser at all. I think that the pandemic is the opposite of an equaliser. I don't have small children. I'm not living in a small flat. I have enough money to buy my way through some problems. 
and I probably know the health system well enough so that I can sort of make it work better for me. I just, I think, um, like every major shock in the world, I don't think it's neutralizer at all. I think it reveals quite the opposite. And, and it also reveals, with exceptions, the absolute reality that keeping homes going is the woman's problem primarily with a hopeful, hopefully a good contribution from the man. But it's, it's, um, so I don't, see this pandemic as an equalizer at all. I think it's it's deepened the divisions. It's increased the connectivity. So I think, you know, things like women emerging from isolation, there is the possibility, and I'm very determined to work on it, the possibility of connecting women all over the world in a way that they've not been before. You know, the technology exists, but not everybody was using it cleverly, whereas now people will. And that, and I think that's giving huge possibilities to people. But you know, a lot of people keep on saying, you know, everything will be different after the pandemic. But truth is, that's not true. Human beings have this extraordinary ability to slide back into their own ways. The only way it's going to have any positive impact is if we all, as leaders or as artists, because we're reflecting the world, the words we're. We're painting the world around us, force the change. I think that there will be a general reframing of what leadership is. As you know, I'm slightly obsessed that most of the leadership books were written by men and most of the ones that were written by women were about how to succeed in a man's world. So I think that the framing of leadership is 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 not the one that's going to serve us well in a future where we're going to have to collaborate much more if we're going to deal with the problems. So I think there'll be a reframing of what leadership is, and that's about time it happens. So mixed feelings about the pandemic. You and I had pointed out um, in our previous discussions this idea of what's our role like I think you, you frame it under we moving from country to country and our responsibility within this, like carrying our own cultures to another country. And so now with what Julia was saying about it's not only our country's culture that we carry, it's not only our first spoken language that we carry, but all those languages that are us, right, as artists or as performers or as technicians or as whatever we, we are. How do we carry on this message? And I guess this is where, like, well, the leadership part comes in. And You know, even if you just come back to the geography, uh, I've been doing some um, work with some quite famous artists in Germany recently. And, you know, they've travelled the world, but they haven't crossed their street. But sometimes it's geography too. Mm. But some, but you know, at another level, I am multiple things. You know, what am I as a mother? What am I as a grandmother? What am I as a wife? What am I as a professional? What am I as a citizen? What am I as something you like to think that they occasionally paint? You know, you are a multitude of different cultures. And to me, your culture and your approach to leadership is as unique to you as your DNA. 
I really like that because I feel I'm I feel like um I don't, don't know what your your thoughts are with social media often that people package that into something that's quite small and puts puts it out on their Instagram or their Facebook as what that's this is who I am right even on my Facebook I'll have words that may define me or something like that but it really is never that one thing and and then people can create that perception of that and then when you're painting something else that that's it it becomes a conflict of that's not who I thought you were kind of thing there's I think there's a a lot to be said through what what goes through our interwebs and through social media which kind of dumbs down the complexity of who we are and how we live right well and if we can't express things in sort of 30 words and they're not real well anything that's expressed in 30 words probably isn't real in a tweet <laughs> well, it's not just a tweet it's a strap line too you know um I mean, I could produce a strap line. It has to be said, though, you know, years ago, somebody who I had a lot of admiration for, I remember him sitting me down and saying, um, I'll do you a favour. And I said, what's that? And he said, you need to sit down, Julia, and spend the next 24 hours trying to figure out what you're going to be proud of on, on your deathbed. So once I'd got over being slightly offended, <laughs> I went away. And it's an interesting thing to look at your life from the end backwards and to say, what are you going to be proud of? I remember him saying, don't tell anybody what you wrote. But I found that very helpful beyond culture. You know, that is probably my DNA, and it's helped me make quite a lot of decisions. You express things in your own way. I was the product of a pretty disastrous marriage, so I've I would never have, for example, written have a happy marriage um, because I didn't believe that was possible. Mm. Um, one of mine was, you know, still be friends with whoever I was married to. You know, everybody has different ways of framing things. And, and recognising, I think that's one of the dangers is that too many people wander around trying to find a culture that they fit into completely. I think it's really important to realise that there's no culture left to completely fit into. You are your own culture, made to pieces of the jigsaw that you that you, you put yourself together. Some of them help more than others, and at different times in your life, um, mm. you, know, you meet different cultures, and something you know you take something from it, or you reject something you've already got inside yourself. But I think having a very strong sense of your core and never letting you know also. I'm now 63. The truth is, as you get older, it is extraordinary how your core creeps up. Mm-hmm. You, know, you become more and more convinced of your own rightness <laughs> and your core becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and you <laughs> shoving it back down again, telling it to behave itself um, and remembering that that exercise and what am I going to be proud of on lying on my deathbed is about helping you to define in some ways your core but actually your flex is as important to the defining of you as the core is. You know, the fact that I don't care about clothes is as big a piece of the definition of who I am as some of the things that are in my core. Mm. That's true. If you were to take that kind of philosophy or approach of going from your deathbed backwards and then we take this into sort of the entertainment 
realm, which most of our audience are. And uh, you mentioned that, you know, people who are artists have quite a, I guess, is it a, a responsibility or that what they're putting out to the world is a representation of who they are or the culture that surrounds them or the context in which they are. And it's what, how, does, how does an artist start to unpack um, that responsibility? So I, I think one of the core things I think you said was it's interesting for me is that they, they don't get outside their own realm of artists and groups, which I would concur with. And even in our own world, we, like, we are entertainment people. We even label ourselves that way, right? And we, and we, we see ourselves as a, a subculture of such that is different to the rest of the nine-to-fivers, right? So we already box ourselves in a little bit when the reality is there are surgeons that work just as long hours as we do. There are people that work in very different, similar contexts. We just don't connect with those people very often. So beyond that, as a going outside your own family group of entertainment people, what else is there that you would see as important as somebody is like in the arts world should look at either in themselves or the world around them to accurately work or com- competently work on expanding their their cultural intelligence well and it also might be very arrogant of me and the arts is a very very big sector here's an answer that may or may i'd be as i go back to doing some work with musicians in germany at the moment it interests me that there is quite a big generation gap between older people and younger people in the arts. There was this wonderful moment during this conversation where this young woman said, you know, leadership is no longer a white man standing on a box waving a stick around at us. And I was amazed how offended people were by that. That was the most wonderful expression. (laughs) Um, You know, we the ability to cross generations is very, very important. And to do that, listening hard. Because I think as you do get older, you tend to use an expression of my father's. He used to say you need to switch the wireless from transmit to receive. Which is what a long time ago that was. But, you know, we, we all become very good at transmitting and not enough at receiving. And I think if I were in the arts, I would be crudely conscious. Young people are beginning to see the world in a very different way from and And we have to listen very, very hard to understand that. And when you start listening, there will be some things they say that will really offend you and it might switch you off but actually it should switch you on. Mm. How do you feel about that, Anna? Um, I think it was Picasso who said that you should be careful with our artists because they they talk to everyone. They would talk to the rich people and the poor people and the politicians and the engineers. I, it, I think it's Picasso. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's like, yeah, don't mess up with an artist because they can talk to everyone. and. I don't know, it, it resonates, but it's true that, I don't know, we sometimes get on our own bubble. But to me, as an artist, it's also art. The art I produce is a way for me to filter my understanding of the world. And it's different because I, as an artist, I consider my, I am a visual artist. I, I'm not a performing artist. 
I work in the performance arts as a technician, and I do see a difference there. But as in terms of producing content that comes from me, it really is this, it's like my stomach. It's the way I process the world to be able to arrive to what Julie calls the core. Like, who am I after all these interactions I have with the world? And it does change. <laughs> and how can I help that? This sounds rather, how can I help the world be more flexible? You know, how can I help the world to have more cultural intelligence? Mm. How can I reveal different cultures to each other? The arts is so fundamentally important in triggering people's imagination to see things differently. You know, the, who am I saying this artist? You know this so much better than, you know, I was doing some work in great city of Latin America and I had to persuade these people and halfway through one of the women said, fine, yeah, of course we'll do it. And I said, what do you mean, of course? What, 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 what's happened? And she said, yeah, of course, do it. And I said, why, what's happened here? And she said, well, I remember meeting you about 20, actually 20 years ago, and you told a story, and I've never forgotten it. And I remember going away from that meeting and thinking, if I'd given her statistics, she would have forgotten me really, really fast. It was because I told a story that she's not forgetting, forgotten me. Mm. And, you know, the ability of the arts to tell a story to people so that it, so that it lodges in their brain, it becomes their, their accounting. You know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. The arts has this extraordinary opportunity and you have to deliver on it to help the world understand each other. Mm. I was listening to um, the, the interview we did to Gab Dupree yesterday, mm -hmm. and I was proofing it, and he, he has something on the exact same lines on the responsibility and the power of storytelling. And it is not the technology we use. It's not the painting we paint. It is the story we tell and the way that people, like, are they going to, what are they going to remember? An hour from now, five days from now, 20 years from now. Mm. But the story doesn't have to be in words. It can be in a painting. Agreed, agreed. Mm. It can be a poem. It can be a theme in music. It can be the way you... That's a wonderful, like, chaos that comes in the arts, you know, for, you know, having to take, say, I'm working with the director now, you know what, very well, Anna. And uh, we're doing an art installation in the theatre that I used to work in. And he's taken his vision, but I'm the one that has to make it a reality. But in me making it a reality, there's me in it, right? And it's the same with I'm not the person, the visual artist that comes up with the idea. I'm the person next to that person helping it make that. And it's taken me a long time to realise that I put my core and flex in that process quite a while. And when everybody comes together, there's lots of that. It's a cacophony of chaos and somehow something at the end gets spat, spat out. And sometimes that is a great thing and it's sometimes at the end it's not a great thing at all and you have to keep working on it. And I love that process. But I feel like the way that 
I've been in, involved in shows that have been absolutely spectacular and I've been involved in shows that have been absolutely chaos and bad and terrible and should never have been put on. And I think that the, the core of what made some of those things work was the synergy and the relationships between the people coming together. And I'm always fascinated about that process, about how that we can collaborate in a good way. So all the best parts of everybody comes together to create that beautiful end result. And the more conflict that arises within that process, the less chance we have of a, of a wonderful result. And then you've got that responsibility on the back end of all the people that are going to come and see what you were, what you worked on together and I just think did, it's a fascinating did you, did you say the more conflict the less it likely is a good result you see I I would say it the other way around I think the more uh, the more conflict the more mess the more chaos the more disagreement the more noise the more energy the more creativity that comes out of it the more sparks the better the outcome, as long as there is somebody there who is a leader and who um, has cultural intelligence and will choose the moment where they say, now we come together. Exactly. But and I think it's, it's that's const- what we need. You it's need. Const- Without that, it's chaos, I yeah. agree. But constructive conflict, right? There's a difference between conflict of ideas and then the egos of the art. Yeah, you- but sometimes... Sometimes people think that anything that they don't agree with isn't constructive conflict. You know what I mean? Sometimes just just conflict, I mean, you know, give me destructive conflict, any sort of conflict, give me that any day compared to a load of people who don't care and are prepared to argue about anything. Yeah, but your point is right. Yeah, I totally agree. There does need that at the back end of that conflict, there needs to be that leader to forge it through at the end, right, to take it to the end result. Who will do it and who will choose and who has this extraordinary ability to choose the moment to say right now and if they get the moment wrong to say, sorry about that, come back, keep going, and then to do it again. You know, it's the ability, to the humility, but also the listening skills to find the moment where you bring it together. Uh, Regan and his idea of inquiry and oh, yeah. the approach of research and yeah and music and conversation and his ideas of thinking together. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fascinating. <laughs> well, that's been. I think we've taken so much of your time already, Julia. A couple of more things. Questions. 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 Just one question. Where can the audience see your work? Get your books. Learn about your projects. If it's narrowly on cultural intelligence as a book, but and it has more in the book than the TED talk, but the TED talk will give you an introduction that's pretty straightforward. TEDx talk, so that's very easy. On women emerging from isolation, just check me out on LinkedIn, send me a message, and I'll bring you in um, and be part of it. I'm delighted that you are. Send me messages, I'm always fascinated by what everybody else thinks. So <laughs> pick, an argument, you, pick an argument with me and we'll have some fun. <laughs> Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about Common Purpose and Women Emerging from Isolation? So Women Emerging from Isolation may be focused. The is, is very much about saying that the world won't change unless we push it. My obsession and my life has been about leadership. I think we need to reframe leadership, make it much more collaborative, much more clever at getting people to work together. 
I think women are in a unique position to 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 do that reframing. Unique, unique, unique. Um, so as women emerge from isolation, either the isolation caused by COVID or the isolation of the last thousands of years that have isolated women, I think we need to try and reframe leadership a little. And so therefore, there's a there's a big group of women who are part of women emerging from isolation, which largely lives on LinkedIn, and we're from all over the world not just what I would call the sort of feminist imperialism of the West. There's a group of us who are trying to do everything we can to try and reframe leadership. And next year I'm going to launch an expedition to go and find the approach to leadership that resonates for women and, and capture it with a group of women from across the world. So um, it's my obsession, but it, it lives on LinkedIn. Yeah, there's a couple. I watched a few videos just before our podcast today. It's very, it's, it's some good stuff in there. So I'm going to continue down the scrolling down the uh, the feed there. Well, thank you very much. I I love all these conversations that make me think so much. Appreciate it. Yes, you've certainly provoked and poked uh, our thoughts about this as well. So I'm just looking forward to continuing to explore that, and uh, hopefully our listeners have also enjoyed that um, and can look you up and ask you questions further. Lots of love and thank you. Thank you, Julia. Bye. Bye. We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There is a link in our podcast description where you can send us your requests and guest nominations. Theatre Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcast episodes for free. If you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast notes. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Live, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theatreartlive.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre Art Live podcast.